0: Hey everyone, as I mentioned last episode, Sean and I were invited by Daniel and Phil of the Lamp Post Listener to join them as they go through the last battle chapter by chapter. If you don't know, Daniel and Phil have been doing that for every book of the Chronicles of Narnia, and they invited us to jump in with them on chapter 7 of The Last Battle. If you go to the last episode on our channel, you'll see... An episode where Daniel and Phil and Sean and I just have a conversation about our podcasts and what we love about Lewis. But in this episode, we get into their regularly scheduled programming, which gets into just discussing what we saw in the chapter, what we loved about it, how it hit us, and our thoughts on that. Now, if you haven't been reading The Last Battle recently... I mean, you can certainly pause this episode, go do that up to chapter seven. If you want to listen to Daniel and Phil recap and discuss each chapter as you go, that's a great idea. Go over to the Lamp Post Listener and and you can read it through with them. That's what I've been doing. But in case you just want to listen to this episode here today, let me just catch you up on chapter seven of The Last Battle. So, Jill and Eustace have returned back to Narnia, where they found Tyrion, the last king of Narnia, and Jewel, the unicorn. These four together have just rescued Puzzle, the donkey, who was dressed up in a lion skin, pretending to be Aslan. And he was put up to this by an ape called Shift. So now, in this chapter, Tyrion, Jill, Eustace, Jewel, and Puzzle, the donkey confront some dwarves who had thought that Puzzle was the real Aslan who had returned and was doing and saying terrible things. Remember, he was being put up to this by this ape named Shift, and they try to tell the dwarves, hey, that wasn't the real Aslan. Uh, Good news, right? But the dwarves, having been taken in by this false Aslan, now refuse to believe anything. And then the chapter ends with two of the uh, bad enemy characters, Ginger and Rishta, discussing how they never believed in the fake Aslan or the real Aslan. So that's the chapter we will be discussing here. I just want to say it was really an impactful chapter for me personally, actually it continues to be as I re-listen to our recording of our conversation. Just uh, had a lot of spiritual implications for me, and so if you are just jumping into the story with this episode, I hope it is spiritually nourishing and challenging for you as well. Just a note that we will be back here on Lesser Known Lewis with our regularly scheduled programming in November with another essay, The Funeral of a Great Myth. But for now, here we go with chapter seven, mainly about dwarves. On the lamppost listener, in case you missed it.
1: Well, hello, and welcome back to The Lamp Post Listener. My name is Daniel. I'm Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. This is chapter seven of The Last Battle, mainly about dwarves. Mainly about
2: dwarves and mainly about our special guests that we have. Well, Jordan and
1: Sean, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks. Great to be back with you guys.
2: Thanks for
0: letting us back in.
1: We had so much fun last time, but we didn't get to talk a lot about Narnia, so we're going to be able to do that today. We have, I mean, we have a chapter today. Oh my goodness. Chapter seven here, mainly about dwarfs. It is one of the most riveting chapters we've had in a long time, Phil. And it feels like one of those chapters that there's so much we can talk about when it comes to apologetics, when it comes to Lewis's philosophy, and just even the actual fantasy narrative of this book. So if everybody's okay with it, I'm going to just go ahead and read our chapter summary so we can dive in and talk about this chapter. Let's hear it. All right, here is chapter seven. The defenders of Narnia come upon a company of dwarfs being transported by the Calormans. Tyrion and Eustace attack the Kalorman guards and free the dwarves. Tyrion reveals Puzzle's lion skin and explains that all of these horrific orders have not truly come from Aslan. To his utter dismay, the dwarves simply don't care. Their leader, Griffel, questions the existence of Aslan and declares that the dwarves will now be for the dwarves. Distraught and dejected, the loyal Narnians begin walking back to the tower in Lantern Waste. They are overjoyed when a single dwarf, Poggin, chases after them and proclaims his allegiance to Aslan and Narnia. Over breakfast the next morning, Poggin discloses that Shift is now only a puppet for Ginger the Cat and Rishda Tarkhan, who both acknowledge that no divine beings exist. Suddenly, everyone is roused by the smell and sight of something terrible.
2: Well done. You changed that last word there. I was watching as you read it.
1: I, it was terrifying, and I thought terrible. Maybe I just kind of hit it with that hard syllable there at the end. I don't know. Yeah. It was a good <laughs> choice. It was
2: a good choice. I also appreciate how he, um, he left it as a cliffhanger in the summary. It's not easy to do.
1: It is a cliffhanger, though, in the actual chapter. It is, yep. Yeah. So, gentlemen, just tell me some of your initial thoughts here with this chapter. My initial thought of this chapter was that
0: it felt like a classic Lewis ice bath, which is something that Sean and I <laughs> talk about from time to time where a certain essay will hit us. It will challenge us and, and reveal to us what's going on in our own hearts mm. or minds or whatever. And this chapter felt like that. I didn't, I didn't know. I've listened to it a couple of times, read it a couple of times now and it every time i'm fine fl- it's like peels of uh layers of myself are peeling away and mm. yeah it just feels like an ice bath because it's like i know it's good for me but it's uncomfortable and i want to get out i don't <laughs> i want to stop this uh but i'll i can explain more of why that is as we get into the chapter but that's how it hit me uh, it was very mm-hmm. confronting wow. for me yeah
2: I feel like we just keep coming up with great podcast names. <laughs> if anyone wants to take that one and run with it, yeah. I'll I'll sell you the domain name. Cause I just bought it while he was saying a classic Lewis ice. Bath. Listen,
3: you guys are getting close to the end of the seventh book. You can go ahead and take that one for yourselves for your continuing Lewis
1: <laughs> for the next one. Yeah. yeah the next thing. Be that. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah. And and for me, I would say, I, I was telling Jordan when we were chatting about this before we started recording, but, um, the Last Battle is the only Narnia book that I've only read twice. Um, I read it oh, wow. as a child, and I remember feeling so angry uh, because Lewis took Narnia away from me. Like, there's no, there's no going back from this. No spoilers. But there's no going back, and I was upset. Mm-hmm. And I was a kid, and it was terrible. And, and, and this, this is... I, I haven't read it in a long time. Then I read uh, Michael Ward's book, Planet Narnia, and after sure, reading that, sure. I went back through as an adult, all through, I was 12 when I read that. No, um, uh, as an adult, <laughs> I went back and read through all those, the books again and loved them. And that was, again, the last time I read the last battle. So I, you know, speaking of the ice bath, I, I just emotionally, this is a heavy chapter. You get mm-hmm. a few different things come out that's very, very heavy in it. And, uh, like Jordan said, really relatable. Um, but I felt at the end of it, uh, pretty sober. Even though there's a glimmer of hope mm-hmm. with
1: with uh with Poggle is his name. Poggin? Poggin. Poggin yeah. The dwarf. Um but I, I will just tell you now that Poggle is a character, but he's from Star Wars episode two Attack of the Clones. Yeah, he's the one who makes the clicking <laughs> the clicking sound. Poggle the <laughs> left. He's one of the Geonosians <laughs> who gives the uh g- gives the plans for the Death Star to Count Duke. <laughs> Why do we know this? Oh, man. Okay. So that's probably what was on your mind, So lesser known <laughs> Star Wars. Here, we want to get into this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh,
2: my gosh. I'd, I'd chastise him, but that's all I could think about when I read the chapter. The first
1: time. <laughs> yeah, Phil knew it, too. It's like Poggin. Poggin? <laughs> that is so funny. But, yeah, so there is this so, there's glimmer of hope with Poggin. So
3: Poggin, Poggin. I'm going to say poggle now. It's through that the whole thing. It's so right. Poggin, <laughs> yeah. And, and so there's that glimmer of hope there. Um but yeah, I think I w- I was really sobered by what I read. Um, despite that that uh, that hope,
1: it, it's uh, funny you should say that, Sean, because I actually pulled a quote right here for the beginning of this chapter from Walter Hooper, and Walter Hooper writes in his book *Past Watchful Dragons* that we already talked about this particular quote, but he says that the last battle is kind of the culmination of everything, and he it was he argued that it was his favorite book and was the most important book in the Narniad. But he actually wrote this, and this is a little bit of a longer quote, but it speaks to this chapter and exactly what you just said, Sean. Walter Hooper says, if the last battle is reread less often than the other fairy tales, and I don't know that it is, this is probably because the first 11 chapters which take place in the old, familiar Narnia, are so extremely painful to read. Almost everything we have come to love is, bit by bit, taken from us. Our sense of loss is made more excruciating because we are allowed, even encouraged, to believe things will eventually get back to normal. We feel certain that the king, at least, will not be deceived by Schiff's trickery, but he is when Eustace and Jill arrive we know it will only be a matter of time until all is put right yet despite their willingness to help there is so little they can do without the help of Aslan and where by the way is he yeah how interesting that he pretty much is saying the exact same thing that you've just said yeah wow it just keeps getting worse and worse each chapter yeah Yeah. it's heavy until the end um But, again, no spoilers here. (laughs) Well, the chapter does start off with the Kalormans. There's four Kalorman men, and they are attacked by Eustace and Tyrion. Uh, Eustace fights one of them, Tyrion fights one, and the dwarves take care of two of them. And... This seems to be, just like Walter Hooper said, there's this little bit of hope here. Oh my goodness, we've taken care, we've freed this company of dwarves, they're going to join the army, we're going to start slowly amassing an army to go take on shift, right? But pretty quickly, all of that hope subsides because the dwarves, they're, they're, they don't trust Tyrion. They don't trust his motives. He actually parades Puzzle out in front of them. He says, look, you thought this was the lion. And Lewis writes that Puzzle has like the 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 hood is like all knocked back. It's like clumped up all on one shoulder. Right? And he's like, look, this is what you believed in. Look, I, I'm showing you the light. You should now come with us. And they're just not convinced at all. Were you surprised by this, Phil, having read it for the first time?
2: I I wasn't surprised. I was a little taken aback at how close this felt to the real world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here. Mm-hmm. Um, and just uh, when Christianity is lumped in with every other religion and someone says, well, all religions are blank, um, usually something negative or they, they feel like they've been misled for one thing. So I had someone who I was having a conversation about where they were with their faith and they had been a part of, of a cult and because of that experience they were really really wary of anything to do Mm -hmm. with christianity Mm -hmm. um and just seeing the the negative effects of something like that um, this just this felt really familiar um, Mm -hmm. and really unfortunate
1: one of the things before we move on a little bit and talk about the dwarves i just would love to ask y'all sean and jordan about Puzzle Phil and I in the very last chapter discussed and debated really the question of how guilty how culpable is Puzzle here. There's that one line that Lewis gives him where he said, you know, I never said I was clever, mm-hmm. right? I didn't know. Uh, do y'all find Puzzle to be guilty here? Do you find him to be mostly innocent? How do you feel about this character's yeah, I mean how, is he guilty?
3: Yeah, it's it's funny because <laughs> as I was reading this chapter I, I asked myself that exact question. Is his mm-hmm. ignorance an excuse for making him guiltless? And I personally, I, I lean toward the fact that he's not guiltless, but he was used. And I think mm-hmm. that there's a, because like, there's the real bad guys, and I, I assume we'll get to it, is, is like Ginger in this chapter, the cat. Um, really comes out as, as just fiercely evil because you have, yes. you have intentional, malicious, selfish betrayal from the cat, the talking cat. So even the Calorman, it's like, well, whatever. They're the enemies of Narnia. So they're going to act like enemies. But this is an insider. But then with Puzzle, you just have somebody who's kind of dumb and whose appetite is out of control. In that same scene that you were referring to, um, where where the this lion suit is is obviously all bunched up and he doesn't look like anything like a lion anymore. It says also he's just chewing grass. and that stuck out to me mm-hmm. too. It's like he's just got food dribbling mm-hmm. down his, his face, you know some stuck <laughs> in his beard. and it's like it's like, yeah. this guy deceived us, what? Um, he He wasn't the one who deceived, but he was the deception. So I think that he he shares some culpability. Um, he, he shares some guilt because uh, as best as, I mean again, I feel like probably a, a a nationalistic Narnian here but I feel like he should have known better <laughs> than to inter, to impersonate Aslan mm-hmm. he should have known better and and yet he went along with it okay.
0: I also think that for the most part he's well let me get to an essay that we've covered here on forgiveness where Lewis says that we are, uh, this is a quote, we are so very anxious to point out our excuses to God and to ourselves that we are apt to forget the really important thing that is the bit left over, the bit which the excuses don't cover, the bit which is inexcusable but not, thank God, unforgivable. That's one Mm -hmm. of the lines from his essays that has been ringing in my head for a long time since since I read it. And I think puzzles in a in a similar spot here, where for the most part, like ninety nine percent, he's just being used. Like Sean said, he's the deception, not the deceiver. But there's a there is a so he can be excused for all of that. But I think there's this one percent, this bit left over, where he's mm-hmm. a li, he's even just a little bit culpable. Mm-hmm. And if you're a little bit culpable, you require forgiveness. Yeah. And yeah. thank mm-hmm. God that while there's a bit left over that's inexcusable it's not unforgivable
3: so that's demonstrated a little bit in the way that jewel the unicorn um talks with him lewis it's almost a throwaway line where he says like when when he and and um and this donkey this deceiving donkey or deception of a donkey are speaking um he talks about things he can understand caring for your hooves and what kind of grass is good and yeah. that sort of thing and there's a graciousness shown toward the Narnians who don't need forgiveness in that particular moment who, who are like, accept him back in. Um, but, and, and so anyway, I I think personally that, um, it asks the question of us now of is it possible to be a victim and a perpetrator at the same time? And the, and the, Mm -hmm. in my, my opinion, and, and what I think the story would say is yes, like you, you, he's a victim. He's a victim. Puzzle is a victim, but he's also a perpetrator, and and so it's complex. His his absolution has to also come with his liberation. Hmm.
1: That's so well said. And in, in the last chapter, Phil took more of the side of you. You were much more empathetic towards him than I was. I was more on the side of condemning him and and you know saying he's he's guilty. And then I found myself reading this chapter, and just like you're mentioning Sean finding myself to have a lot more empathy for him there's even you mentioned some of those lines there's another line too as they're leaving the doors which we'll get to in just a moment it even says he's like not even fully sure what just went down mm-hmm. he doesn't fully understand that conversation mm-hmm. like the nuance and the complexity of the rejection of Aslan has kind of gone over his head and the way that Lewis as the narrator writes that he is he, he has a sense of warmth towards puzzle the prose does and I think that allowed me as a reader to kind of maybe set aside some of my frustration you know and again I'm always trying to put myself in the mind of like how is a 10 year old reading this book right Mm. and I was able to set some of that frustration aside and say oh man just like you said he is both the perpetrator but he's also a victim and it's almost like this welcome of like come along we we want you on our side as well too Mm -hmm. and so I I do love the way that It's So much of Narnia, what makes it so great uh, to read with younger audiences, is the fact that there's very clear delineations between good and evil. Mm -hmm. And Puzzles one of those characters that's much more complicated. Uh, I mean, I think he is clearly on the good side here at at this point, but he comes with a lot of baggage, and we don't have a ton of characters that do, which is what makes him so fun, I think, here Mm -hmm. in The Last Battle. Moving on, though, to these dwarves. The dwarves are pretty clearly rejecting Aslan here. We hear from Griffel that, you know, they just, we've been taken up. He, he said, what, like, uh, the word he keeps using is like, uh, do you think we're blooming idiots? I believe, is the is the phrase he says. And he's, uh, this leader of the dwarves, just saying, look, we've been taken in once. We're not going to believe any of this stuff. For, and, and also, how do we even know that you're Tyrian, right? Because they're dressed up like Kalormans. And, Tyrion here, who has, in many ways, each chapter since first being captured, has kind of gained a little bit more strength back, a little bit more hope, or hope, is really just like he face plants here. Tyrion, we see as the king of Narnia, does not have a good response. In fact, his only response is, well, he's not a tame lion. They're like, yeah, we know. And that's why we don't trust you anymore. And throughout this entire conversation, they, they end up... Leaving and just completely rejecting Aslan. No, we don't want all of this kind of, we don't want to be puppets anymore. We don't want to be pushed around anymore. We're going to kind of, if you want to use maybe more modern language, we're going to kind of take our own truth and we're going to kind of go with that. We're not interested in what you're selling anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are we to make of this scene? This is the part
0: that really, this was the ice bath for me. Yeah, Because, well, actually, at first, I think the first time I listened to it, uh, again, recently, I went, oh, these, this this is like a little bit of a picture or an illustration maybe of what we see in those pockets uh, right now that are, you've heard maybe the term ex or mm-hmm. deconstructing mm-hmm. Christianity. Sure. And you, you see with the dwarves maybe a, a reason why those things happen is because they yeah. were sold a Christianity, taught a Christianity that was on some weaker legs. And then it's revealed to them that the the lion is actually just a donkey, you know, that, yeah. that the scriptures are actually written by humans and might have mm-hmm. some uh, incorrect numbers in them or whatever you want to say. Yeah. And and then you say, but there's still a there's still an Aslan out there. There's still a God, and they mm-hmm. go, "No, nah, I believe that once before. I'm out. Like I, I'm not gonna be taken in again. Yeah, fooled me like, once, you know, exactly kind of idea. Right. Yeah. And so on my first read through, I saw that and I thought, "Ha, this is this is those people." And then when I read it a second time, I recognized myself in in the dwarves Hmm. because I just saw them as I saw their cynicism and the way they would just doubt everything and I haven't uh, I haven't been deconstructing my faith but the last little while I've been in this I I don't know what to I don't know how to describe or talk about it but I think maybe I'll, I'll try and try and articulate it a little bit because I think there might be a lot of people who would resonate with it which is just that I've been told for so long that God has great things for you and and yet like you're saying in this chapter it's like things just keep getting worse like that Walter Hooper thing about these chapters things just keep getting worse and worse Mm -hmm. meanwhile I'm being told that God has good things for me but I'm finally at the place of going okay well where is Aslan where's he at where's God? Mm -hmm. (laughs) At what point does he show up and the good things come? Because things just keep getting worse and worse. And so someone shows up and tries to give me a note of hope or tell me about what God's going to do in this next season, or uh, here's how God's, you know, where God's leading you. And I just go, I don't, I'm done believing it. I don't, I don't want to, I, I don't, I can't muster up the hope to believe in that again. So for me personally, I'm not, disbelieving in God and my, my faith in him. Well, okay. So I believe in him, but the question is, do I believe he's good? Do I actually trust? And am I willing mm-hmm. to be that mm-hmm. vulnerable to trust that God's good and that God's still here doing something somewhere, even if I don't see him. And so for me, I saw myself in the dwarfs going, I've been taken in a couple times now. I'm not falling for this again. I'm not going to sure. let my hope get up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I was I was recently asked like I found myself in a room with um, a group of younger teachers and while I'm by no means an expert I've been doing it for about a decade now I've been teaching younger students and I was asked kind of just some advice that I had you know and it but this was on the spot like I hadn't prepared anything so I kind of am trying to rack my brain in this moment so I'm talking to people who are in their first or going into their first year of teaching and the, the weird thing that just came out of my head in this moment was i said i said you know what's what's weird about teaching and i've i've been in elementary and middle schools for for my career so you know what's what's really interesting about teaching a 10-year-old or a class full of 10-year-olds is that you'll usually find yourself to be the most cynical person mm-hmm. in the room mm-hmm. right and i don't like to think of myself as a cynical person but I, I am. When I'm surrounded with, you know, 11-year-olds or 12-year-olds or whatever you have, it's true that I'm usually much more cynical than all of them. It's true as well, like, when I'm around my own son, right? I And so, just like you've said, Jordan, I think if I'm honest, this atheism of the dwarves, if we want to call it that, and Joseph Pierce in um, Further Up and Further In, he makes some illusions, connections between the cynicism and atheism— This this revelation, you know, it comes after a long time, it's not sudden. And I think if we're honest, this idea that we're just going to be for ourselves, and we're going to reject your Aslan is actually kind of logical. And I think that's why it's scary. Like, it makes sense. I mean, there's only so much you can take before you just throw your hands up and say well uh, I guess everyone's just lying to us every single person is either trying to be oppressive or manipulative everyone's self-serving and at some point you just say look is there anyone good out there how can I trust right you've sold me this Christianity my whole life or this person's selling this version and this person's selling this version at some point you got to say look I just don't buy the God you're selling at all mm-hmm. right there's so many opportunities for us then as well to find ourselves in the same shoes or boots of these dwarves, right? They're not some vision of these manipulative, enlightened secularists or humanists, mm-hmm. right? We, we get that later with Ginger and with Rishta. Instead, these are just, pe- these are just people of faith who are burnt out. One, they got tricked one too many times, and they're just overwhelmed, and they no longer want to be a part of it anymore. And I think that's actually what's so terrifying. I find them to be more terrifying than Ginger and Rishta because I'm like, well, they're just evil, right? I can handle good versus evil. And I, I hope – well, I'm, I'm absolutely a sinner. I like to think that I'm not an evil, manipulative person, right? But I but I am cynical. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, yeah, right, guys? Everyone – right? I'm not evil. <laughs> um, but I am cynical. And so I find myself to be very, very close to these dwarves.
2: I also think it speaks to the the power of stories in general but especially this kind of story that is this well written where you can see yourself as different characters at different points it's not it's not just a clear like this is this this is this but oh like at this point in my life I I'm seeing the dwarves as people in my friend circle or now I'm the dwarf uh, same thing happened with the the parable of the lost son where I used to you know, feel like one of the sons, and now I feel like the other one and stuff mm-hmm. like that's really powerful over, over a long period of time.
3: Yeah. And, and to your point, Phil, <clears throat> I, I found as I read it, um, going through and, and I can relate to everybody in this, in this story. And I think that, um, You know, Jordan, you're talking about the the dwarves and and, um, I would zero in on their cynicism. I do. I think that's a really good word. Um, I lived in Turkey for a while and there was an interesting thing as I was learning Turkish. um, They don't have a word for cynicism. They try and just Hmm. use it as a loan word from English. But when you describe the concept to people, they just say it's umutsuzluk, which means hopelessness. And I'm just like, oh. that's not what I'm describing. But they're like, no, it is what you're describing. You, you're describing <laughs> hopelessness. And, um, and unfortunately, I would, I would say that um, we, would, we would give it maybe more of a nuance of saying that we are worldly wise or that we are, we are in the know. We are mature even or intellectually sharper if we are cynical and mm-hmm. I know that I feel that way toward politics comes up on our on our podcast a lot, where I just go like, I literally, we don't even have a two party system in Canada. We got like a whole bunch of different people yeah. I can vote for, and I can't <laughs> figure out who the right who the right choice is at the poll. You know, yeah. Um, and sure. but but that that cynicism, again, for your listeners who are not people of faith, I think it's it's very clear. It, I, I've heard it said over and over again that this is Lewis um, talking about his contemporaries who walked away from their faith and he wrote them into the dwarves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we can, we can apply it there. But I also think that the cynicism that we feel toward um, all authorities, government, police, healthcare, economic structures, media. I mean, where we just go like, why would I listen to this news story when I know that all the other news stories have all been biased it, it, I actually think we're having a very a, we're in a dwarvish moment, <laughs> you know, right now historically, uh, where this is this is not only considered normal but considered enlightened to think like the dwarves, and so the challenging okay. thing for me, the scary moment, is and I would even just read it is is where you know Eustace and and uh, Tyrion they 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 win, and they've got this like the battle rush going on and then and then he's like. Tomorrow I'll lead you to free all Narnia. Three cheers for Aslan. And then it says, quote, but the result which followed was simply wretched. There was a feeble attempt from a few dwarves, about five, which died away all at once. From several several others, there were skulky growls. Many said nothing at all. And I just think (laughs) the scariest moment is when I think, The biggest deal there is in my faith for me, by far. But any of these institutions where we go, like, oh man, here's somebody I think I can actually get behind, or I have a vision that I think people should get behind, and you have you're Tyrion in that, and you stand up and you say, guys, let's go in this direction. There's actually really there's hope for real change, transformation, freedom to come here, unity to come here, um, help to come to these people, and you 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 do the three cheers for Aslan moment, and the people who you think are going to be on your side are go like, no we're not going to get fooled again.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that passage is, uh, it is the beginning of a step towards how to undo your cynicism. I think there's a couple of hints in this passage because, uh, so a good friend of mine told me recently that it, it can be actually, it should be a positive thing. If you discover you've been disillusioned, mm-hmm. um, the good friend was Sean. and He told me this about 10 minutes before. We, <laughs> oh,
3: I was like, Oh, somebody else <laughs> said that to you. That's great. <laughs> right. uh,
0: it should be a good thing that you, that you discover you've been disillusioned because you realize you're, re- you're you can then remove the illusion you've been under. But mm-hmm. in that place where there was the illusion, now you need, you need to find the correct vision. Um, and so like for, you know, those who have deconstructed their faith, that might, there might be actually things that you do need to deconstruct, but then the problem is, don't, mm-hmm. like, don't stay there. You now have to reconstruct something. Mm-hmm. And the dwarves are like, no, we're not going to, no Aslan, no king. We're not going, we're not reconstructing anything. We're just, we're deconstructing and that's where we're staying. But in, I think the, the beginning hints of how to get out of cynicism and become hopeful again, and move back towards constructing something and, and being healthy. There's hints here where, you know, three cheers for Aslan. They're supposed to praise Aslan Mm. and they don't. And I think praise is one of those things that can begin to start your heart back up again. Um, And then Jill says, uh, you know, you can have fun again. You, everyone can go back to their ordinary life. Aren't you glad? And, there's a pause and they don't answer. So I think that's another thing is is allowing myself to be glad or thankful. Because she says later, you should be thankful for your rescue, for your salvation, and you're not. And so for me, I think just those things, praise, thanksgiving, allowing myself to be glad for just these basic things like salvation, um, I think are the cornerstone of... Maybe the touch point where you, once you deconstruct, you de- deconstruct to that touch point of salvation and then just go from there.
1: Yeah. yeah. So these dwarves, though, they leave. You know, we're trying to put back the pieces here on the podcast of, of looking for the hope, but we don't actually find it in the book itself, right? Or at least in the narrative. Mm-hmm. The, the, the dwarves leave and silently. This these defenders of Narnia begin to walk back to Lantern Waste and they're walking back to this tower. But there's a a small little glimmer of hope because Poggle no not Poggle, Poggin, excuse me. Poggin (laughs) arrives and he explains that he does want to fight for them and fight for Narnia. And he gets a couple cheers and a slap on the back. But I mean, this is one one dwarf. That's all it is. The company th- then does go, and they retire to the tower. We know that the, the two animals, they or the talking beasts, they sleep outside. Everybody else sleeps uh, inside, and Pagan actually wakes up, and he gets up very early, and he takes Jill's bow, he gets some breakfast together, and they start making a stew, and I, I thought what was really interesting about this. is And Lewis gets really into the description about the food they're making, everything that's happening and all that's going on. And some of that's just Lewis's beautiful prose. He loves to kind of spend a little bit of time laying out that landscape, right? Um, but as you were still mentioning, Jordan, some of the ways that we can combat cynicism. I also wonder if, if Lewis is trying to tell us a little bit about Poggin's behavior here, about even Paul Ford mentions in... Um, And his book on Narni says that Poggin's persistent cheerfulness is a direct contrast to the other dwarves' bleak cynicism. And so I wonder if Poggin waking up and going about just kind of the monotonous activities of making breakfast and taking care of others and just doing regular life, quote unquote, is part of maybe break and enjoying it is part of breaking that cynicism. And it it reminded me since we have y'all here, it only makes sense of that extremely famous line in on living in an atomic age where Lewis says, you know, if we're going to be destroyed by the atomic bomb, let that bomb when it comes, find us doing those sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint in a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. Yes. And obviously that's, that was an essay that was all over the place right in 2020, right? Spring of 2020, as we were just trying to make sense of the world during COVID. But I do think that that, that truth also relates to kind of the way that Poggin interacts with the world around him here by simply we see in his cheerfulness his kind of rejection of cynicism, by simply just being helpful, by just being normal. And I do wonder if some of that cynicism comes from, and I say this as someone who's, who works in education, but over-intellectualizing so many things, right? And instead, and this is where Lewis especially, he talks about this in, in that inaugural address in 1954 at, at Magdalen College at Cambridge, about the fact that we are disconnected from the natural world. That everything we think, um, all the way from our metaphors to the ways that we just engage with our neighbors, is much more mechanical than it once was. You know, that's when he says that Jane Austen has more in common with uh, you know, the, the ancient Greeks than she does with him yeah. in 1954. And so I, I do wonder if that's also a part of it too. I don't think Lewis is giving us the answer for how to not be cynical but I think he's laying these little kind of just like just crumbs of bread of, again, I don't know that he has the perfect answer either, but just here are some things to be thoughtful about.
3: Yeah. And again, he's doing what good stories do. He's not telling you, he's showing, he's showing you something. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think even why the four of us can, can see something a little bit different and and it'll provoke different thoughts in our minds. Cause yeah, he's, we're, we're, we're kind of tasting it through the story. Cause I would say you're right. It's not, it's not an answer. When I think about, um, You know, I've had, um, uh, you know, immediate family members and, uh, employees and coworkers and close friends who have all struggled with like clinical depression. And I know that one -hmm. of the most important things when you're in that level, um, of kind of darkness. And again, we're talking about the cold of the night just before dawn, the coldest hour, right? Um, and that's when the normal stuff is happening and that's when the praise is happening and that's when the acceptance mm-hmm. is happening, all those things. So even that, I think like mental health experts would say to us, if you, if you reach that level of actual, not just cynicism, but clinical depression, um, you, you have to continue to go through the, even the motions, even if they're only motions of normal everyday life it, to preserve yourself through the coldest hour of the night, right before dawn.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, this chapter continues here. These, these last few pages, uh, Pagan is, as he's as they're eating this meal together, he recounts uh, the conversation that he overhears between Ginger the cat and Rishta Tarkhan. And we've heard one mention of Ginger so far. I don't think we've heard Ginger speak or anything. We just heard that there was a cat. And I don't know if we've actually been introduced to, to Rishta Tarkhan. Have you, do you remember Film. I don't. I remember the cat, but I don't remember. Yeah, I think this is the first time. And this happens because Tyrion asks about, oh, what, what story do they tell about my escape, right? And supposedly Shift comes in and he, he says that Aslan just shows up and eats them and this story terrifies many of the other talking beasts. But what's really interesting is that Poggin tells us that Shift has taken up drinking. Mm-hmm. And as he has taken up drinking, he has become less and less effective. As a leader. Now, he wasn't really all that effective to begin with. We saw that way back in chapter three, where he's like, Oh, Asla needs more nuts. He needs more nuts. Make sure he gets a lot of nuts. We're all hungry, right? It's like, all right, clearly this isn't going to work out super well. Yeah. He's entirely self-serving. And from the beginning, Shift had no plans of dominating the world for the sake of anything other than serving his own interests. He was not Thoughtful. He was not enlightened, is actually the word that Ginger and Rishta use here. He was simply just looking after himself. And so, what we learn here is that Ginger and Rishta Tarkhan are both in agreement that, and this is even the the very important line here that we get. Uh, Rishta says, Doubtless, most sagacious of cats, you have perceived my meaning. You mean says Ginger, that there's no such person as either, meaning Tash or Aslan. And Rishta responds, all who are enlightened know that. And I think that that word enlightened there is very uh, meticulously used by Lewis. I think he knows exactly what he's doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I wondered if... Tell me what you think about this, because this just dawned on me, like, last night as I was preparing the it seems well this part I'm pretty sure on it seems like the abolition of man is running throughout the background of this story but in that um, little book that he wrote Lewis wrote he talks about there being a couple different types of people one he calls so there's the intellectually stunted and mm-hmm. there's so there's let me back up a little further I think he sees people as being... A mix of your head your heart and your body that's pretty probably oversimplifying it but there's these people who are kind of all body all appetite really hmm. and they're intellectually stunted because they're not really using their head and they're not really using their heart either i wonder he calls these people trousered apes mm-hmm. and i go mm-hmm. well that must be shift right like yeah. he's all appetite He's not really using his head. He's just going with his his gut, and he's not using his heart or his emotions or his morality either. But then there's this other type of person that he talks about in The Abolition of Man, the urban blockhead, who is, they're not going with their body, but they also aren't using their heart. They're, They're emotionally stunted, and they overcompensate with their head and their logic and their reason, and they're the more enlightened people And I wonder if that's like ginger.
3: Oh, that's so good, Jordan. And as you say that, that makes me wonder about even um, with puzzle, because one of the things that I was going to say earlier but didn't was that puzzle is just because he he doesn't have an excuse for being unformed morally. Like his affections Mm -hmm. are 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 out of alignment. And that could have saved him from becoming this um, uh, victimizing victimizer. You know, or sorry, a victimizing vic- victim. Uh, anyway, but I wonder if he's he kind of represents a developed heart that has no head whatsoever and is also not really in his mm-hmm. body. Like, I wonder if, if Lewis is really intentionally putting that into these characters.
0: He's literally in, in someone else's body.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Oh, that's interesting, uh, yeah. Uh, One of the things I think that's so interesting, I love this connection, Jordan, is with these with with ginger with rishta you're right it's totally it, it's all in their head We're, which so you can juxtapose that with shift who really is just a hedonist right yeah. like that's mm-hmm. that's what he's mainly focused on it's just my gut my pleasure that's all i care about and and i don't even know if we really get that sense as much in that first chapter What's interesting is you read that first chapter, and it seems like Shift could be even worse. Like he might even be more deceitful. But the second he gets power, it's like, nah, it was just, it was just to make life easier, just to pursue pleasure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? He almost, I mean, not to at all downplay, you know, the whole fact that he creates an antichrist. That's a pretty big <laughs> deal here. But like, once he becomes in power, he's not actually nearly as awful as you. Again, I'm not trying to like, I'm not on his side here. Compared to Ginger and Rishta, who are, like you said, are all head to the point that they, they don't care about emotion. They don't care about, and I, th- I think we see this in a lot of our, we see, obviously, we see a lot of people who are very much like, hey, it's whatever your body, or it's all hedonism, it's just whatever feels good, whatever, is, whatever you feel like, that is truth, right? And we know that that's not, that simple view is not compatible, right, with, with Christianity. But at the same time, there's a lot of other people also that say, well, everything in your head, it doesn't care at all about your feelings. It doesn't care about your emotions. Those things aren't important. In fact, this is just truth right here, and you better get on board or else. And there's no, you know, there's no empathy. There's no, like, kindness towards others. Not that kindness is in itself, in and of itself, maybe a virtue. We Maybe they want something a little bit more deep than simple kindness. But – I do think that Rishta and Ginger could potentially be this kind of this caricature of so intellectually minded that it's turned them into just being completely immoral, right? And it's—what's interesting is we—I I know that we don't find this out later on in the book, really, is we don't know how they became this way. But Sean or Jordan, I don't remember which one of you pointed this out, but Ginger, Ginger's a talking beast, right? Like— uh, yeah, Sean, you said this, like, the Kalormans are the enemies of Narnia. It almost, like, makes sense. But Ginger's going against their own country at this point. And I wonder if it's, well, I'm just so enlightened that that just is what happens eventually, you know?
3: Well, and I don't—I I think betrayal is, is a theme that does run through a lot of the Narniad, um, starting with Edmund. Um And, and it, and how do we, how do we work through betrayal? And so it makes sense that this small cat that's, you know, that is ultimately kind of becomes it, it, the small cat isn't the the antichrist, but I do think that it's interesting that Lewis made it a cat and not some other animal. He's, he's really trying to write myth more than allegory, but it is allegorical, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that he's giving us a little point toward another antichrist figure here, that there are many antichrists, among you you know like um famous words from first john right where where lewis sees this cat that's now starting to take control and to manipulate and and like you know jordan and danny you have both pointed out is very intellectual he's intentional he's malicious and this is a betrayal and that betrayal comes in the form of something that is like a mini lion the miniest lion Mm. (laughs) Mm. oh
1: wow that's good and i think that's actually a great way for us to end this chapter honestly that it is kind of an allegory maybe lewis would hate that we called it that but he's not here to yell at us so we're gonna just go with it uh the chapter then ends with uh so uh poggin has recounted this and then as he's doing that there comes this foul smell in the air maybe the smell of a dead bird and everyone sees something that is horrific and then the chapter just ends And this is where I get to turn to you, Phil, and and ask you, what do you think they are seeing? And I have... You've never... uh, Do you want me at least to tell you the next chapter without helpful?
2: I imagine an animal died.
1: Do you think an animal... Something
2: died. Is it an animal that we know? Unfortunately, I think so. Do, Do you want to guess... Who that could be? Maybe a dinosaur. A dinosaur. Okay. <laughs>
1: Maybe this is the first time a dinosaur shows up in Narnia. <laughs> I'm
2: still stuck on the fact that this would have been the book to introduce Scratch and Sniff to the Narnia.
1: The uh, well next chapter is chapter eight, and that's called What News the Eagle Brought? And in that chapter Tyrion— yeah, it's not a dinosaur. No, no no dinosaurs here. Pterodactyl <laughs> Ty- although isn't that like a thing though that like dinosaurs supposedly had feathers? Is that isn't that like a thing now?
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Also like birds are dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So uh, but in that chapter, Tyrion and his company advanced towards Runewit's army. Do you remember Runewit the Centaur from earlier yes. in the book? Yeah. They're gonna go catch up with his army. But knowing what you know, it probably isn't going to go well.
2: No, we're still ha- we're still kind of in that halfway point.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, Sean and Jordan, this has been so much fun to work through this chapter with y'all. Do y'all have any final thoughts before we wrap up together?
0: Final thought would be, I I didn't really bring it up, but there was there's a number of like phrases in this chapter that are good summaries of the gospel. And what the gospel does okay. or whatever, like there's, there's right off the bat there, Tyrion says to the, uh, soldiers when they ask him for a password, he says, this is my password. The light is dawning. The lie is broken. Yeah. And I am mm-hmm. just like, that's a, I like that. Like if that's, that's something that you could get tattooed or, um, or crocheted or set it
1: on, <laughs> on your wall. <laughs> I thought you were going to say get crocheted on your skin. Like, take your skin hair, <laughs> crochet it together. Like yeah, what... bad, bad time to pause,
2: man. <laughs> that's right. I was going to say you could set it as your actual password. Okay. Like
1: Daniel oh. did. That is the password, yeah. yeah if online. you want to log
2: into the Narnia podcast at gmail.com.
1: Just... If you, yeah, it's very long. It's now though, you got to so. change
2: it. That's
1: why we had to get LastPass. I couldn't keep remembering what it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, and
3: no, I just want to say thanks, guys. Like, um... Uh, mm-hmm. I I loved it and this is like I said the the, the least read of my Narnia series here. I've had the same same edition since I was about ten years old, nine years old when my mom bought this for me one Christmas and uh and I'm gonna have to go through it again. You inspired me to go through the rest of the novel. Oh excellent. That's yeah, don't strange. don't stop here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> keep going. Further up and further in, right? Yeah well
1: he doesn't know that but yes i understand <laughs> i suppose <laughs> it sounds good to me well, well jordan and sean we mentioned the last episode but uh lesser known lewis people can find you anywhere that they find podcasts y'all are going to be starting season three pretty soon correct
0: probably by the time this episode's out i would hope we've already recorded some but Uh, It depends on how fast I am in editing when I can get them out. But hopefully by the time this is up, you can find the beginning of our first season, which is called On Metaphor and Myth.
1: On Metaphor and Myth, season three. That's going to be a really great season. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, one final thank you to both of y'all. This has been so much fun. And for our listeners, as always, this episode is made possible by our patrons over at patreon.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can listen to a bonus episode each month along with other rewards. Special thanks, as always, goes to John Marr, Emily Wakefield, and Ryan Smith for supporting us at our top tiers. If you have any listener feedback, you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com or send us a voicemail at four zero six six four six six seven three three, And you can find all of our other previous episodes links, book information, and uh, information on Jordan and Sean and Lesser Known Lewis at lamppostlistener.com. We'd appreciate a review wherever you listen to this podcast because it helps others find the show and join together on a read-through. Thank you for coming along on this journey, and we'll be back next time with Chapter 8.